Last week, when we were teaching last week, we saw um, that the miraculous was manifest in Jesus Christ. And the reason that it was manifest was so that people would be drawn to the source, not to the act of the miraculous, but to the source of that power. And so he was in the synagogue. Remember, Jesus and his disciples head out to begin their work. Now, Jesus had been, um, had been down by the Jordan, and he had been baptized. He had been heralded by John the Baptist. This is the Lamb of God. And he then went out into the desert for his 40 days of prayer and fasting and to be tempted by the devil. And then he comes down into the Galilee, and he goes along, and he's preparing, uh, preparing for his ministry. So he grabs his disciples. And here's what happens with his disciples. Mark 121, this is from last week. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and began to teach. Remember that? He just like, immediately. There's no, he's baptized, he's tempted in the wilderness, and instead of taking a week off or two to, to recover, he goes, he walks back to the Galilee region, picks his disciples, and immediately go into the synagogue. This is all at one time, no stopping in between. Now, remember from last week, part of the audience there in the synagogue was not all that happy to see Jesus. Mark 1, 23 to 25 says, Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, What business do you have with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. Remember that? No big fanfare. No, let's all gather around. No, let me go and recharge and think about how to attack this problem. Jesus says, be quiet and come out of him. End of story. In typical Mark fashion, not a lot of, he's not going to elaborate, not a lot of fluff. He's like, this happened. And then we move on. Moving on. I love that about Mark. He's just like, this was awesome. But the next thing's going to be awesome too. So we have no time to think about that. Let's move on to the next. Now think about that. If you were in that synagogue, that was no ordinary day, right? They did a lot of cool stuff in the synagogue, I'm sure. But that was absolutely no ordinary day with the demon coming out of that man. Mark 1.28 said, Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding region of Galilee. That's how we know that it wasn't an ordinary day because these were devout Jews and immediately the story started to spread through that whole area. That's the whole point. They witnessed the power of Jesus right there and they were spreading the word of it. That was the point of the miraculous then. Same point we have right now. We're going to be sharing testimonies later today. I've got a microphone right here. When the message is over, we're going to share testimonies. This message is specifically about healing, and so I want to share testimonies about healing. If you have a testimony about miraculous healing in your life or something God has used you for or something that you've witnessed, I've got the mic up here. We're going to do that at the end, so I'm giving you time to to think about that. We're going to encourage one another sharing those testimonies of the miraculous. So moving on, here's where we are. Mark 1.29, and immediately after they left the synagogue, okay, this is Jesus and his disciples, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Okay, Simon and Andrew, that's the house. The house belonged to Simon and Andrew. 
Very, very common. They were brothers. Now, Simon is Peter, Simon Peter. Again, if you were writing a book for, for public consumption, you wouldn't have guys with two names or different names. It's confusing. But Simon Peter, same guy, Simon Peter. And he and Andrew, his brother, owned this house together. Very common for extended families to live under the same roof. In, in that culture, if a widow lost her, or if a woman lost her husband and was a widow, she couldn't live by herself. She would move back in with her children. So very common that whole extended families would live together, and that's the situation we have here. So here's that word, though. And immediately after they left the synagogue, so nothing in between, Jesus is driving out this demon. This demon is declaring he's holy one of God, and they leave the synagogue and, the, and immediately go over to Simon and Andrew's house. It's exactly what happened here, and James and John following along. That word immediately, again, I love that. If you know me, if I've ever written you an email or if you've ever seen any of my posts on, on social media, I'm the king of exclamation points. I kind of use it like, like a space bar, constantly. Mark does that same thing here with the word immediately, constantly. Like, he did this, and immediately we did that, and then we went straight to this, and he is all no-nonsense. And again, the whole point of it is just to make the miraculous known and, and the power of it. So this is what's going on here. So... Um, let me show you a picture. There's actually a picture of Andrew's home right here. This is, wait, that's Prince Andrew. Prince Andrew, you knew that. Here's actually Andrew's house. If you go, that's, that's Peter. They call it Peter's house because he's kind of the rock star of the brothers, right? But um, that's actually a, uh, an Orthodox church. It's in the back there. And this is the, the ruins right here of what's left of that home. You can go to Israel and Capernaum, and you can actually see that. They were doing excavation of, a, uh, of an Orthodox church, not excavation, kind of a renovation there, and they found this underneath. So basically, they scrape off that Orthodox church, which was only 1,500 years old, and they find this underneath. It's amazing. You see that in Israel all the time, by the way. If you ever see the capital of Israel is Tel Aviv, there's a lot of places that have Tel, T-E-L, before their name. Tel, in that culture, what, in that language, really what it means, it's a city or, or a settlement built on top of another. So you see that all the time where there's like a big mound, and that's a Tel. And there's a modern city or a modern village on top, and then buried underneath it are generations, if not millennia, of other settlements. You see that in Jerusalem. You see that all over Israel. It's a very common thing. And so when they were doing the excavation, they weren't probably surprised to find something else underneath. Let me share an interesting fact about Andrew and John. Andrew and John were first disciples of John the Baptist before they were disciples of Jesus. They were disciples of John the Baptist. They were probably present when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, most likely. We don't know that because Scripture doesn't say it for sure, but we do know for sure that the very next day, when Jesus came back next day, remember John the Baptist sees Jesus and right there declares out that he's the Lamb of God. We know that they were present then. We know that because Scripture tells us. John chapter 1, 35 to 37 says, Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. That's the next day after he baptized Jesus. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. 
And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Those two disciples that were standing there were Andrew and John. They basically said, we've, we've been your disciples, John, John the Baptist, but this guy's pretty cool. We're going with him. So they ended up following and becoming disciples of Jesus right at that time. Now think about this picture. Think about this picture. Andrew and his brother Simon, or Peter, when Andrew left, when they left this scene at the, at the uh, Jordan River, Jesus went into the wilderness okay, to, be, to fast and pray. But they, the other ones, Simon, Peter, they went home. All those guys, John, Andrew, <coughs> they just went home to the Galilee and started fishing. Like, Jesus is going to go do his thing by himself. We're going to go home and, and resume our lives they probably had no idea really how this thing was going to work out. But imagine the scene. Andrew and his brother Simon Peter on the shore of the Galilee and they're fishing. Can you imagine if you were Andrew and you saw this and you're telling your brother about this? It was amazing. John said that he was the Lamb of God and I saw the clouds open up and, and all these cool things happen and, and you got to meet this guy. He's amazing. You got to meet this guy. And then a month later, 40 days plus later, Jesus walks up to him on the shore. Can you imagine what that looked like? That's the guy. Simon, that's the guy I was telling you about. That's Jesus. So when we see the stories about Jesus walking down the shore and picking his disciples, in our minds a lot of times, like that's the first time they'd ever met, when in fact, it was the first time Simon Peter met him, but it wasn't the first time that Andrew did. Andrew knew who this was and says, that's the guy. This is the Christ I told you about. The same dynamic happened just a little farther down the shore when Jesus came upon James and John. Not John the Baptist, John and James, the sons of Zebedee, you remember the sons of thunder? came upon them. So the same dynamic. And they picked up or dropped their nets and they followed Jesus, but they knew who he was. So just a cool part of a story that, that sometimes we don't put that together. They did know at least. They didn't know the fullness of who he was. They couldn't possibly know. But so they leave there and immediately they go into the home. Now, when they arrive at this home, the first thing they do is they see a sick woman. Scripture says this, Mark 1.30. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and they immediately spoke to Jesus about her. So again, picture that scene. It's probably malaria. We don't know for sure, but malaria was very common at those times. It created a really serious fever. It was common. It was also at that time often life-threatening. And if you didn't die from it, it was certainly not like the 24-hour bug where it would hit you and go. You were sick with malaria for a long time. But we also know this. Chances are Simon didn't know that his mother-in-law was sick. Because if he did, he probably wouldn't have told all these guys like, hey, let's go over to my house. We want to meet. Let's go, let's go to my house. He wouldn't have done that knowing his mother-in-law was sick. Now think about this. He had seen Jesus drive out the demons in the temple or in the, in the synagogue, but he didn't really understand probably the fullness of Jesus' healing ministry. He saw that deliverance right there, 
but he probably had no expectation that Jesus was going to heal his mother-in-law. So what he probably, imagine this, imagine this conversation. He walks in, Simon walks into the house, sees that his mother-in-law is sick, and goes, oh, back out to the door of the house. Okay, um, Jesus, here, here's the thing. My mother-in-law is pretty sick, so we're either really going to have to keep it down in there, or maybe we go over to John's house or something instead, because she's sick in there. That's kind of the way I picture it. We don't know that for sure. But we do know that he wasn't expecting Jesus to go in and heal her. We know that because if we look at the words, Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately, and they immediately spoke to Jesus. That word spoke is a Greek word. It's literally pronounced lego. That word lego means to mention in passing. So it's, or, or bringing to closure. So it's not like they said, hey, Jesus, she's in there sick with an expectation that he was going to go in and heal her. It was more like, hey, she's sick. Let's, let's move on. It was more of that kind of a dynamic. So they didn't really expect that. If you read Luke's gospel, though, strangely, this is one of those things people can think is a contradiction in Scripture. Luke, Luke chapter 4, verse 38, says specifically, they asked him to help her. So they asked Jesus to help her. That's how Luke says it. But if you remember when I talked about Mark's gospel when we started, I kind of said some people actually call it like Peter's memoirs because they think in a lot of cases this was dictated to Mark from Peter. So given that this was Peter's home and Peter's mother-in-law, I think there's a really good chance that his recollection of the tone of the way things happened was probably a little bit more accurate. It doesn't mean that Luke is wrong, okay? It just, the, the, the meat of what happened there is exactly the same. It's just a recollection of did they expect it or did they not expect that Jesus was going to heal? And at this point, I think Peter had no expectation, really, that Jesus would or could heal her. But Jesus had another plan from the very beginning. He had another plan. All the way, you can go all the way back to the very first mentions in Scripture and see that there was another plan. But let's just go back 700 years before this moment in Jesus' ministry. By the way, this is all taking place on Jesus' first day on the job. His first day of ministry. This is his first day. That's quite a first day. But Isaiah, 700 years before this moment in Christ's day, he said that, the mission of the Messiah was going to be to take our sin, our sickness, and our pain upon himself. Not because he deserved it, but because he loved us too much not to. Here's some well-known scriptures from that. Isaiah 53, 4. However, it was our sickness that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assumed that he had been afflicted, struck down by God, and humiliated. He's prophesying then that even at that point, there are people that are going to think Jesus brought this on himself. But he's saying no. That's what we assumed. But Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. This overwhelming compassion that Jesus had would not allow him 
to simply bypass this woman in need. It may not have been the plan to start with, but when he saw that she needed healing, nobody asked him, but he said, I have to. And here's in typical Mark fashion. Here's how succinct Mark is. Mark 131. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she served them. End of story, moving on. Nothing to see here, folks. How perfectly straightforward for a miraculous act. He came to her. Some of the other gospels elaborate a little bit. They say Jesus was standing over her. They kind of paint more of a picture. Mark is just like, he came to her, raised her up, taken her by the hand, and the fever left, and she served them. There was no fanfare. There was no ceremony. There was, no, there was nothing but a pure expectation that this was going to happen based on the fact that Jesus knew that he had authority to heal. Jesus had that authority to heal her, so he did. And so he just simply went over, took her hand, and said, let's go. You're done with that. There was no, no ceremony surrounding it, just an expectation. That was the first example, by the way, of Jesus healing on the Sabbath, which he goes on to do over and over again. There are very strict rules of things you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. This wouldn't be the last time Jesus bucked those rules. But what was her response? Remember her response, I told you just a minute ago, and she served them. This is the natural response of a grateful heart. When God works the miraculous in your life or through you or through somebody that you love or care about, the response in our heart should be, I have to serve. I have to give back somehow. It's that grateful heart that is just overflowing with service. And so it wasn't like, woman, I'm going to heal you because I'm hungry. He healed her because he loved her and had compassion for her. She served because she had an outflow of her heart. I've been healed and I have to give back. So that's what she did. Now, this would have been, practical note, this would have been the third meal of the Sabbath. Remember, this is all still on the Sabbath day. Still that day, and this would have been the third meal, eaten before sunset, because the Sabbath goes from sundown to sundown, to an hour after sundown to be exact, on the following day. So this was their third meal, and again, in in tradition, Hebrew tradition, everything was very carefully, this is what the first meal looks like, the second, the third, it was all very structured and laid out. So this meal probably would have been something like some challah bread, some chicken, some wine, so a nice meal, but fairly kind of straightforward meal. And this is what they sat down to eat. Now, some people think that this woman and her healing was meant to be a private event. Like, because Jesus didn't say, hey, go tell everybody or take her outside and say, I'm going to heal you in front of all these folks. He just healed her and said, let's eat. But we do know that somebody in that group, we don't know if it was just if it was just the, the five of them, four disciples and Jesus and mother-in-law, so six, or if there was somebody else there. My guess is there was somebody else there because the very next thing that happens, Mark one thirty-two. now when evening came, so that's one hour after sundown, okay, Sabbath is over. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. So they, meaning 
all the surrounding, somebody went out and told what was going on. That word bringing, by the way, if we look at the Greek of that, it's the Greek word pharaoh or furrow, and it literally means to carry forth. So they were carrying people who couldn't walk to Jesus from all over town, carrying people who were demon-possessed, bringing them to Jesus. So word of his physical body healing and of his healing deliverance had gone out and spread all over town already by that time. Now, that wouldn't have been, that idea wouldn't have been anything necessarily revolutionary to the people in town. They would have known, if you were a Jew, you would have known stories of Elijah and Elisha from uh, First and Second Kings. You can read those if you want to hear, the, the stories are amazing. But so they would have been kind of familiar with this idea of healing. They still had no way to grasp that this was the Messiah. For all they knew, it was just another prophet doing some healing. They didn't know who it was, but they knew he was doing it. And they were curious, and they had enough confidence of what they heard. They were going to bring people um, to be healed. So remember, Capernaum was a city of about 1,500 people, give or take. Okay, so a fairly good size. Can you imagine the scene? 1,500 or so people bringing another couple hundred maybe, who knows how many exactly, they were demon-possessed or needed healing, literally carrying them outside of, of poor Peter's house with this expectation that they were going to be healed. It would be literally impossible for Jesus to be anonymous from this point forward. They knew that he was a healer and deliverer, but they still didn't understand really that he was the Messiah. There have been a couple of them who were there when they, maybe they saw the heavens open up and God declared, this is my son, maybe. We don't know if they were there. They were there the next day when John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God. But they still probably didn't put together the pieces of who he was. Mark 134, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Not bad for your first day in ministry. What did you do on your first day of your, of your last job? Probably not that much. Think about this one part where he says, and he would not, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Now, that doesn't mean where it says that he healed many. doesn't mean there were some he didn't heal. I healed those, didn't heal those. He healed everyone who was brought to him. Many just means there were a lot of people that got healed on that day doesn't exclude anybody. But let's go back to verse 34 again. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Remember the scene all the way back in the synagogue? Seemed like thousands of years ago where he was healing the man of the demon possession and the demon said, what business do you have with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That demon knew And he said, we all, all of us demons know who you are. So this wasn't an instance of Jesus saying, be silent, demon, I don't want to hear you. By the way, he does that later, and we can do that, silence the voice of the enemy. We have that authority, and we'll see Jesus do that later. But that's not what he was doing here. These demons knew who Jesus was. They knew that he was the Holy One of God, and Jesus was not about to have demons be the one to herald the arrival of the Messiah to the world. 
quick sidebar here. If you study scripture at all, especially Mark, you've probably heard the term messianic secret. Anybody heard that term messianic secret? Messianic secret. Nobody's heard of it. I'll just skip that. I don't even go into it. No. I need to tell you because I don't want, I don't want anything to trip us up. I don't want anything to be something like, I never even heard of that. That sounds weird. There's so much in Scripture that just is misunderstood or not fully understood. This idea of the messianic secret is sometimes uh, put forth. Essentially what it is, in the, in the book of Mark, Jesus again and again and again says, after he performs a miracle, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. We see it happen several times. There was an uh, instance of the man that was cured of leprosy. That's Mark 143. Jesus says, and he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. Okay, so he heals leprosy, but then warns him not to tell anybody, sends him away. After raising the synagogue official's daughter from the dead, Mark 5.43 says, and he gave them strict orders that no one was to know about this. After healing a man that was deaf and dumb, couldn't hear, couldn't speak, Mark 7.36, and he gave them strict orders that no one was to know about this. Again and again, even after Peter acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus says, and he, this is Mark 8.30, and he warned them to tell no one about him. Mark 9.9 describes the transfiguration. An amazing event. Peter, James, John were all there witnessing this transfiguration, this incredible event. And Jesus, and it says, as they were coming down from the mountain, he, Jesus, gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until, here's the catch, until the Son of Man rose from the dead. That's important. We need to remember that for a minute. The term messianic secret was invented. Theologians have been talking about why the Gospel of Mark does this so much. Strictly says, here's the miraculous, now don't tell anybody, especially given the fact that the miraculous was done so that the word of Christ would get out. It doesn't seem to make sense. So theologians have been wrestling with this, trying to reconcile and figure out why. Back in, 19, in the 1901, to be exact, this German theologian, his name is Wilhelm Reed. Forget that name already, because he was wrong. He claimed, he, he made this, this theory called the messianic secret, claimed that Jesus himself didn't know or think that he was the Messiah. And that really it was just a title that was put on him by the disciples. Scripture proves otherwise so many times. That gained quite a bit of traction, though, that idea. It's dying out now, thankfully. Mark chapter 8, verse 29 and 30 says, And he continued, he meaning Jesus, continued questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Now, if you look at that interaction, if somebody said, you are the Christ, and you went, mm, I, I'm not the Christ. He's still to come. Don't call me that. I'm not the Christ. Okay, he would have said that. But instead, what he says is, don't tell anybody. So Christ knew who he was. But there's a lot of reasons why modern theologians kind of still sometimes give as reasons for this, this messianic secret. Here's a few of them. One, Jesus wanted to keep the focus on the kingdom of God and not on himself. 
plausible. Some say that the more you try and keep a secret, this is my favorite one, the more you try to keep a secret, the more it will spread anyway. Who's ever seen that dynamic? Now, don't tell anyone. That's a certain way to make sure everyone gets told. Some say that Jesus didn't want to get arrested too soon, as if putting out there early that he was the Messiah and admitting to that would somehow accelerate the plan so fast that Jesus couldn't fulfill the things he needed to fulfill. He would just run out of time. I don't think God works like that. Some say that the idea of a secret is meant to stir us as modern readers to say, okay, now we're not supposed to tell anyone, but we know. In hindsight, we know that Jesus is the Messiah, and so it makes it more of a uh, more compelling for us as we read this. Now, don't tell anyone, but we know who he is. The very first verse in the Gospel of Mark, in the very first chapter, blows that theory, blows all these theories up to me. Mark 1.1, anybody remember what it says? It says this, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So much for any secret. But here's what I believe. And it's not critical theology, but here's what I believe about that. I don't think any understanding of the true glory and the true fullness of Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah could possibly be complete without the Holy Spirit. I think without the Holy Spirit, you would at best have kind of an idea of who you thought he was. And your expectations, especially if you were a Jew at the time, your expectations of a Messiah would have been entirely different, as we've talked about over and over again, of who the Messiah was. They were focused on praying for and needing a political and a military savior. Come drive these people in power out of power. Come help us and we will overthrow them by by blood and by force. That's what they were expecting, this warrior Messiah who would drive out those in power, who would save those who were oppressed. And in truth, Jesus came to do just that, but not in the way they would have expected. Not in those in positions of earthly, temporal power. I don't care if you look at politics now, if you look at any warring nation, you look at anybody, and you, and you say, they are, they are powerful, they're going to create world change. It's just a blink in the eye in time. Here's our true enemy. Paul says this, Ephesians 6, verse 12. Well-known scripture for a lot of us. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's our true enemy. And that's what Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came to defeat. The expectation was different. And a revelation of Jesus as the Messiah before hearts and minds were truly ready to understand and receive that would lead to misunderstanding, would lead to disillusionment, would lead to people coming up. Instead of saying, Jesus, heal me, deliver me from the demons, it would have been, why don't we go to Jerusalem right now and you can drive out everybody who's in charge? That's not what his ministry was going to be. But Satan continues to use those tactics today. Anytime we see Jesus not acting as this, um, as this cosmic ATM or as this, this genie granting our wishes, Satan's right there 
to start sowing some disillusionment about the power of Christ. And it all comes from a misunderstanding of the purpose, the purpose of Jesus. And right now, Son of God, John, John 1, 1 John, sorry, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That's why the Son of God appeared. And the works of Satan are destroyed through the power of the Holy Spirit in you today. We are the ones, God's people, the body of Christ, we are the ones who continue the work of Christ, destroying the works of the devil. When he said, it's better that I go because you'll do greater things than this, he meant collectively, we will all do the things that he did in his ministry in the Galilee, but multiplied by the millions in his body. The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. That's why the miraculous happened then. That's why the miraculous happens now. And so, church, we are going to take a few minutes, and we are going to destroy Satan's works by sharing testimonies of God's healing today. So we have time. So I told you earlier, I I said, get ready. We're going to share some testimonies, and it can be anything you want, but specifically I'd like to ask for testimonies about God's healing, either in you or through you for somebody else or somebody that you know. Mark 16, 17, and 18 says, These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. We're not doing the serpent part today. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Church, that happens. We've been given the power through the Holy Spirit in Jesus to do those things that he did, and it happens. It happens in this body. It happens in this church every day. But you know how the enemy wins? Is if it just happens to you, and you keep it to yourself. And you say, people will think I'm weird if I tell them how I was healed, or they'll be skeptical, or they'll be doubtful. Satan's going, yeah. All that miraculous power of Jesus, it helped you, but it's not helping anybody else. You just keep that to yourself. We're going to defeat the works of the enemy by sharing them with the word of our testimony. So I want to, right now, we'll pray and we'll do communion in a few minutes. But anybody that has a testimony of God's healing, of the miraculous, come up front and do it right now. We have time. I probably didn't turn it on. Jeez, who's in charge here? Here you go. Um, My name is Billie Jean, and this is from years ago. Um, I remember um, my grandma was in the hospital, and she had, I think it was a spinal meningitis, um, and she was in a coma for about eight days. And I remember just thinking that my grandma was, you know, was going to be going home. And um, she... She came back, and um, the doctors, it was in western Nebraska, they called her the miracle lady, and um, she told us, and she lived about another 10, 15 years after that, but she told us um, that when she was in this coma, um, that she had seen my grandpa Harold, who died in 1968, and, you know, you always hear those stories of somebody, you know, beckoning you to, you know, come on, and, and she said that that had happened with her, but that she had the sense that 
um, it was not her time yet. And so when I hear those stories now, I'm like, well, I would have thought, eh, but you know, who doesn't believe your grandma? So anyway, my grandma came back to life and we got to keep her for a while till she actually did go to her home. So I always remember that. And so I, I know it's possible. So why are we here? We should be in hospitals like, just like. Exactly. <laughs> Next. I know we've got plenty, don't be shy. this this morning, so I'll just do it again. Um, and there's something I can add to. So when everything for me in my life shifted and changed um, and I was no longer married and all the things happened, um, I got really, really sick. And I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease called Graves' disease. And I was having some really serious issues with my heart. And when I went in, I had a very large goiter from my thyroid being so enlarged. And the doctor told me that it would never go away that I would always have it, that it would be pretty prominent and that it could get smaller, but that it would never go away. And I don't have a goiter. <laughs> and I went into remission about a year after a thyroid storm, which is unheard of. And so much of it I feel came from the body here who prayed over me. Um, they anointed me with oil. They had prayed over my, my thyroid, my neck, my body, my heart. Um, and God healed me. Uh, I'm still in remission. Again, that's the only thing I can explain is that it's Jesus. And then one quick other thing that I may not be like huge, but I burned myself pretty significantly at Rise because I'm learning to make coffee. Not, not great all the time, but I spilled boiling water on my hand. And as soon as it happened, I like pulled my hand back and Daniel was out with me and he immediately grabbed my hand and said, in Jesus' name, you are healed. There will be nothing on your hand. And this was yesterday. So I have nothing on my hand awesome. at all. So God is good and he is real and he is a healer and he is a miracle worker. So. Amen. Uh, my name is Scott. Uh, my wife and I host uh, the online uh, service every other week. So I have the benefit of bringing visual aids. Um, so uh, when I was, because uh, I saw this in the first service, so uh, 16, sort of long story short, we were 16 years old. We were at, uh, at a youth group uh, camping trip up in the hills down in Sangre de Cristos outside Salina and uh, messing around with a buddy of mine. And for some reason, uh, he had this thing on him and uh, he gave it to me for my 18th birthday a couple years later. And he pulled it out, and we were just done. And uh, it, I didn't know I, I hit it. And I said, Brian, it went through. And he's, your shirt? I said, no, my hand. And, it, and I had this little trickle of blood down both sides of my hand. And uh, still have the scars to this day. And uh, we got rushed down to the emergency room in Salina at 1030 at night and watched a surgeon come in in his bathrobe, quite literally, and put a probe down through my hand. And he said, I don't understand how, but it's, that thing didn't hit a single thing inside your hand. He said it, it missed every nerve and every artery and every tendon in there. He said that, and he, his words were, that knife had to bend and weave through your hand to do that. Um, he said, I don't know how, I had like 30 stitches on the outside of my hand and one on the, the, in the inside on a sheath of a tendon. And to this day, I have uh, still, still play guitar and still, <laughs> st still do woodwork and still have all the feeling in my hand 30 years later. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's uh, you know, and I came from a Baptist church where we didn't do this stuff. So, yeah. 
God works even among Baptists. Yes. Ryan. Jeremy? My sister um, was diagnosed a couple years ago with stage four cancer, and they gave her like six months to live. Said it was all throughout her body, and um, she called me. She's like, I, don't tell mom and dad. I don't want them to know. She goes, but I know that you pray, so please start praying for me. And so uh, Bob and myself and my wife, of course, and a bunch of people from prayer teams were praying for my sister. And I went to see a client one day, and she had a, a doctor's appointment the next day. And I'm making a really long story short. But I get out after meeting with this client to this, my phone blowing up. Call me, call me, call me, call me, call me. So I call my sister. She goes, she goes, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. I not only don't have cancer, I don't even have any traces of cancer ever being in my body. And the doctors can't explain it. That was just so cool. That's awesome. I'll try to make this short, but it is a little bit of a longer story. Uh, so about 20 years ago, when I was, well, let's just say 20 years ago, um, I was a teenager, so I was just trying to kind of figure out like who I was, and I was growing up and uh, got some really surprising news when I got my braces off. Uh, they took some x-rays and actually found a tumor in my jaw. So went to an oral surgeon and that tumor was successfully removed and it turned out to be benign. And then like a month, two months later, went in for a follow-up and uh, the oral surgeon took another x-ray and actually found another tumor in the other side of my jaw, which wasn't there from a couple of months previously. So I was, you know, I was, I guess I was 14, give or take. So I felt bulletproof personally and I wasn't concerned, but my mom especially and my dad and my family, uh, everyone was really concerned and kind of freaking out, which at the time I was like, okay, like whatever. Um, so pastor elders from our church came over to our house one day and they prayed over me, anointed me with oil. And I went in for the pre-surgical procedure, like maybe the next week. And um, they took more x-rays to see if it had grown and to kind of figure out what their plan was. And the oral surgeon was a guy named Dr. Malik. Uh, he's an Indian guy, very nice guy, great surgeon. He did great work. He walks in and he looks at me and he goes, I, I do not believe this, but I cannot find it. And I said, well, what do you mean? And my mom was sitting there and she just started crying. And uh, he's like, we can't see the, the tumor. It's not there anymore. And uh, I actually, this is probably the first time I've really told this story. I've told a few friends and people who knew me at the time knew. Um, and I think for me, the difficult part is accepting that God loved me that much, but then also, you know, recognizing that he didn't just do that for me. Like we're talking about here this morning, you know, he did that so that I can continue to love him to love my neighbors, and to tell people about the good news of the gospel. But, yeah, that's, that's my story. Uh, so I'm actually, 
Uh, my name is Jason. Um, I'm, I'm really blessed to actually have quite a few different stories that I could choose from, so I'll just pick a couple and I'll say them really quickly. Uh, so the first one, this was actually quite a while ago, that I went with, um, one of my best friends was really, really sick with something, some disease that, uh, she was getting tested for like everything and we couldn't figure out what it was, but she was really badly sick. So uh, Zach Harris and myself, uh, we were just learning about how to pray for people for healing. And so we were just like, okay, we should probably just go pray for her. And so we just went to her apartment and her mother was there and a friend of hers. And we just kind of were like, okay, well, scripture says you lay hands on the sick and you believe that they've been healed. And so we just prayed for her and instantly she just felt better. And I, in the moment thought, uh, I thought we would have to pray a little longer. We only prayed one time and she was healed instantly. And I was like, that is the coolest thing. I've ever seen because like her throat was like closed she could barely speak I couldn't even hear her like half the time and then she was like oh yeah I guess I'll just eat some lunch now and drink whatever and her throat was fine and she felt perfectly good and that was uh, I think one of the first times that I've really seen like healing for something I've prayed for and something that happened more recently um, for myself actually was um, I had a cavity like on one of my front teeth and um, I hate the dentist. I haven't gone in a very long time. And I never ever want to go back. And I had a hole in my front tooth. And so I was like, oh no, I really don't want to go to the dentist. And so I was like, no. Scripture says that we should be healed. He, it's his desire for us. And so I was like, okay, well, in Jesus' name, I don't have a cavity in, in my tooth anymore. And it's, it's closing. Like I'm watching my tooth be like healed like the hole is just closing and it's the coolest thing ever because getting to see healing for yourself and for other people is just such an amazing overwhelming feeling and yeah awesome. anybody else all right hi everybody hi my name's craig i haven't met all of you but um Thank you for your stories. Thanks especially for sharing something that's so close and uh, that maybe you haven't shared before. Um, I've probably got some of those, you know, if I, if I dig deep. But as I sit here and listen to everybody, what I think of is the little, the little healings, right? Like, we love to hear one where it's like, demons be gone, they're healed, right? It's so miraculous. We see it right there, you know, right in front of us. But what I like to think of is the little bits that I get, like, driving. You know, I'm... I have a military background, you know, we're kind of, you know, we don't like to be real soft kind of people anymore, but, um, you know, I get into traffic and somebody cuts me off, right, and I want, I want to be that mirror, you know, I want to hold that up to that person, be like, look what it would be like if everybody acted like you, what would the world be like if we all just cut each other off like that, so I want to get up there and get angry, but then I stop, I'm like, you know what, that's not, that is not what Jesus would have me do right now. Regardless of being able to do that, I could just take a moment and say a, say a little prayer for that person. You know, maybe, and maybe Jesus reaches into that person and makes him feel a little bit better. I don't know. But for me, for me, I'm not hurting now. I'm healed just by listening to that little flicker of Jesus, right, that says, care about other people. Don't be mean to them. So thank you. That's awesome. We're going to, let's celebrate that some more right now. 
Sometimes the best healings are things that come through the renewed mind of Christ, just places that we don't ever go to begin with. And we can call that healing. We can call that miraculous too. Because our worldly mind, the flesh in us, would want to cut that person back off or lash out at somebody or hurt somebody intentionally because we were hurt. And sometimes that renewed mind in Christ, that healing regenerated mind just keeps us from even going to that place. And that's to be praised also. So let's do that right now. As we, as we go into worship, worship team, you guys can start getting ready. We're going to take communion right now. Um, I forgot again to have somebody serve communion for us. Terry and Mary Ann Cooper, would you guys mind serving communion for us? Nothing like calling you out in the middle of church. It's okay. You can say no in front of all these people. Thank you, guys. We're going to take communion together. But while we do that, let's take some time. We've talked about testimonies of healing, of Jesus' healing power. We've read scripture about it. We've learned about it. Let's see it in action. I know there are people in this room right now, people out there online who need healing prayer, who need to see the miraculous happen in their lives right now. So let's do this as a body right now. If you're out there online, you can put it in the chat boards or whatever. And we have a prayer team right now who will pray with you online, pray for you. We have people here in-house. So look for people with a prayer lanyard. Zach, I'm going to ask you to do it again. In the back, we have, we have a young man who is so gifted in the prayer gifts, uh, prayer and healing gifts. And he, he has such a burden to share that with people. So we want to give an opportunity for that. But we have prayer team in the back. Look for lanyards, Jim and Sandy. Go back and get prayer. Don't be shy. This is a place where we want to see the miraculous happen in this church. And it doesn't happen if you say, gosh, I could use a miracle, but I'm not going up. Well, then you've denied the power of Christ working in you. You've denied other people the opportunity to see that work in you. So let's stop Let's stop siding with what the devil says. That can't happen. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be weird. And let's side with Jesus Christ who says, I came to destroy the works of the devil. Amen? Let's do that during this prayer time, during while the worship team plays on. And let's take communion together as a body. So again, Terry and Marianne up here will serve you. They have wine. We'd be happy to serve you communion up here at the crosses we have self-serving it's juice out there if you'd prefer to serve yourself or your family do that but let's do that and while we take communion just remember that we don't take this just remembering Jesus did a thing it's through what Jesus did that we are reconciled to the father it's through what Jesus did that we receive the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus to travel the Galilee doing miracle after miracle after miracle. That same power lives in you if you call Jesus your Lord and Savior. And that's what we celebrate during communion. That's what we celebrate. I'm celebrating that and I'm aligning myself with the ministry of Jesus and with his purpose for me on this earth to bring people to the Father. That's my job. And by aligning with Him, we say yes. We will be a part of that. Here we are. Use us. So let's take time. Let's move around. Feel free to engage in any way that you want, whether it's healing, prayer, or communion. Let's do that and just celebrate as we worship together. Amen? Amen.
Thank you, church. And then after this, we will have our potluck outside. So we hope to see you there.